tonight. He reads from his new memoir, I Can Give You Anything But Love. Gary Indiana, thank you. I have gouache all over myself. Um, the, um, the book I'm about to read from has a special meaning for me. I've forgotten what it is, but <clears throat> this was, um, I, I hate memoirs. I mean, contemporary memoirs. I think like if you're Chateaubriand or Madame de Sévigny or one of these great people in history, then you're entitled to write your memoirs. But if you're 20 years old and you just got out of a fucking MFA program, you should live a little first. Um, however, as I've said in here, I'm old enough and I've had a range enough life that I am justified in writing my memoirs. Unfortunately, I'm also at an age where I can't remember very much. So, um, this book is, represents sort of what I was able to recall. <laughs> and, and the parts left out will never be filled in by me, I can promise you that, because also I discovered while writing this that it's a, a lot more fun to write a novel because um, you are in control and when you're writing a novel memory is your friend because if you're describing a room or you're describing a character and you're trying to like get that one little detail that will make people believe that you're telling the truth then memory will bring it up for you It'll bring the memory of a piece of wallpaper or the sound of somebody's voice. But if you're writing a memoir and you try to remember something, you're not just going to remember the little detail you need. You're going to remember the whole fucking thing. Which, and memory is not your friend. It's not your friend. Amnesia is your friend. Um, or anyway, it's my friend. Um, this book is dedicated to Jerry Gorovoy, who is my best, best friend, and Tracy Emmett, who is my other best, best friend, who both helped me through a very, very, very difficult time in my life and enabled this book to happen. Um, like that. And if you think I'm boring, wait till Eileen Miles gets here. <laughs> I'd like to read the epigraph of this book, which is not by me, but by Jean-Paul Sartre. And naturally, at first, it would only be a troublesome, tiring work. It wouldn't stop me from existing or feeling that I exist. But a time would come when the book would be written, when it would be behind me. And I think that a little of its clarity might fall over my past. Then, perhaps, because of it, I could remember my life without repugnance. Perhaps one day, thinking, 
precisely of this hour, of this gloomy hour in which I wait, stooping, for it to be time to get on the train. Perhaps I shall feel my heart beat faster and say to myself, that was the day, that was the hour when it all started. And I might succeed in the past, nothing but the past, in accepting myself. In the Philippines, almost every week, someone is killed in a karaoke bar for singing my way by someone else who doesn't like his singing. My way is, of course, a hubristic and self-congratulating song, as many Frank Sinatra standards are. But my way is a particularly abrasive song for people who have to listen to someone else singing it. A person who thinks he did it his way is often mistaken. But even if he really did, it's sometimes prudent not to sing about it. <laughs> this afternoon, Abdul showed up at my apartment on Kai Vente Uno IJ. In the door's Judas eye, I made out a sweat-beaded face from an old photo, scarily close and unexpected, like a sea monster humping a periscope. At first, I couldn't tell if he was Abdul or another mulatto who boned me a few times a thousand years ago when the skin market assembled at night by the Fiat garage on the Malecon. The other guy went loco the summer a drug shipment slipped past the ghost guard and flooded Havana with cocaine. Before that, even a little weed was a shrieking rarity. By September, Yinteros were burgling houses for coke money and banging clients in apartment house doorways. After an inevitable crackdown, gay rights groups in El Norte denounced the Castro regime's repressive measures. The Castro regime can piss up a rope, but some repressive measures are understandable. Nightlife shifted up La Rampa, and the hustlers took over the cafeteria a block from where I am now. Then, when I was away for seven years, the scene trickled back to the Malecon. The Bim Bom Cafeteria at La Rampa and Infante is homocentral central these days. The old Fiat dealership has become a spruced-up cafe, serving breakfast at sidewalk tables. I wouldn't want to see the cokehead again. I didn't feature seeing Abdul much either. I don't like people showing up here uninvited. It's important to maintain boundaries. Besides that, Abdul is a pig. A harmless pig, but a pig all the same. I thought to keep the barred security door between us, then realized it wasn't locked. I saw you last night at Bim Bum, he said, flicking the door latch and slipping into the salon. He attempted a hug. I slid out of reach and steered him out to the terrace. I followed you up here, he proudly revealed, but it was dark. I wasn't sure what he meant by that exactly. People like Abdul have eyes that see in the dark with the accuracy of night vision goggles. For that matter, they could pick up your location anywhere in Havana as if your wallet was sending a GPS signal. Some would mistake this for tropical exuberance run awry. Worse, people like Abdul expect congratulations for raping your privacy. 
Abdul is an attractive man now in his 30s. In the US or Europe, he could model underpants for Calvin Klein. There is nothing overtly crass or desperate about him. Still, in days of old, he was full of crude calculation and annoying self-assurance that emanated from his prick. That hadn't changed either. Why not say something instead of following me? He strode to the edge of the terrace and pointed to the Park Victor Hugo across from the Romanian embassy. I would have. A police stopped me over there. Like all Havanans, Abdul refers to law enforcement officers using the indefinite article, as one speaks of an invasive plant species. Oh, in other words, you followed me for 15 blocks in the dark. He pretended not to hear, tapping spatulate fingers on the glass table. He glanced at my notebooks and pencils, then pulled out a metal chair from the table. It screeched horribly against the floor tiles. Seated, he suddenly looked compressed and expectant, somebody waiting for a bus or a doctor. Why didn't you come all these years? Porque, porque yo estaba tan filas aquí la última vez. It's hard to sell sarcasm in a second language. I didn't succeed or else he wasn't having any. I was happy here when he last saw me, actually, at times. Que, porque después de 9-11, el gobierno de los Estados Unidos hizo imposible. Si, claramente, entiendo. Do Cubans call 9-11 Nueve Once or something else? What Americans call the Bay of Pigs, Cubans call the Victory of Chiron. Maybe they have less apocalyptically compressed terms for disasters befalling El Norte, which Americans consider infinitely worse than anybody else's. It was a pivotal event in the modern world, obviously, but Cuba hasn't been part of the modern world in a long time, marooned in a Marxist-Leninist time warp of sluggish totalitarianism. I poured Havana Club and Cola into a pitcher while citing punitive measures the U.S. can take against unlicensed travelers if it wishes, notably a $25,000 fine. Not worth talking about, but I was never in the habit of conversation with Abdul. When I knew him before, I spoke about 10 words of Spanish. Being fluent now didn't change things. Flutters of comprehension involving his chin and fingers as he drained his glass didn't convince me he had any idea what I was talking about. In Abdul's particular milieu, it's never clear if people even try to follow what you're saying or listen for keywords while waiting to bring money into the conversation. It felt confusing to see him, a little sad. The connection was never important enough to joyfully recall it a decade later. I didn't suppose he was in the throes of fond remembrance either. Yet we acted like old friends who had liked each other a great deal more than we actually had. Abdul isn't old enough to find the continued existence of another person uncanny, I thought. One has to lose quite a few people before that happens. Maybe he senses something encouraging in the fact that I'm not dead yet. But he isn't surprised. It surprises me, but that's a whole other story. There was nothing to do but showing the kitchen, the back terrace, looking down Calle where it stretches to the Caribbean, press, passing the Hotel Presidente and the tall buildings on the Malecon, the smaller bathroom, the middle bedroom, the long blue tide tiled bathroom between the bedrooms, the front bedroom with shuttered French windows that open on the narrow part of the front terrace. I keep valuables in the spare bedroom closet. 
I should explain that I've been living like part-time in Cuba for the past 17 years. So, I mean, if this like is coming out of left field, you should be aware of that. Um, I, I, um, I keep valuables in the spare bedroom closet and dresser drawers. I learned the folly of renting a flat without a locked safe room a long time ago. Abdul doesn't steal, I recalled. Out of habit, though, and in case, I told him it was a storage room that the owner in Bogota has the key. He ogled the flat with blatant territorial lust. Everything vaguely scrubbed, swept, mopped, dusted, washed, folded, and tucked into place daily. Palatial rooms, bare-looking despite many paintings and lots of heavy mahogany furniture. An enviable residence by Havana standards, though many grander ones exist, not only in Vidado and west of here in Miramar, but even in Casablanca across the port tunnel, or the slummy outlying districts east of Havana Bella, like Gregla and Cerro. In every quarter, houses built for the rich who fled half a century ago were redistributed after the revolution, parceled into Suededela or left intact for single families. You'd have to be a determined swine not to see something wonderful about this, considering who owned these houses under Batista. There was a man who loved islands, the D.H. Lawrence story begins. He was born on one, but it didn't suit him as there were too many other people on it besides himself. It was said of D.H. Lawrence that he never believed in the existence of other people, and when he was forced to, he hated them. Well, there is, aside from that, this thing about islands. Unlike the whole world, an island is a place a solitary person can attempt to understand. This city was built for giant people. I'm sorry, I miss my boyfriend so much. With histrionic lies, the Bygone lies portrayed by in the Brazilian telenovelas everybody watches here, lies magnified by vertiginous ceilings and endless marble-floored rooms. Many not-so-well-off Cubans with lives of lesser grandeur inhabit the weather-beaten villas of vanished gangsters and deposed politicians with a casual dignity that isn't entirely borrowed from a different time and a higher class. They have as much ancestral memorabilia as their former overlords and often more impressive family history educational credentials and professional attainments. That's how it is. The flats in this building and the identical house beside it on Calle 21 Uno are occupied or unoccupied by professionals who leave the island whenever they please. It's not merely the flat that's enviable, though it's nicer than when many of my friends live, but also the privilege implied by the owner's perennial absence, the working elevator, the copious unused space. At least two flats in this house have been empty as long as I can remember. Their owners working abroad and unlikely ever to live here again. The apartment is riddled with mirrors. An absurdly huge one framed in polished mahogany in the front bedroom, smaller ones in the bathrooms, mirrored insets and cabinets, mirrors placed strategically over bureaus and dressers to primp and knot ties in, or reflect a much-enacted primal scene. 
Alberto, who owns this flat, and the twin, and his twin in the adjacent building wing, and another on the top floor, is a famous Cuban actor currently working in soap shot in Colombia. A corazón abierto, la quiero a morir, milagros de amor. His old communist father occupies the flat directly overhead under the roof. He's senile. Each summer, Alberto leases the next door place to an aunt who lives in Madrid. Alberto painted the pictures on the walls. He is a highly esteemed he is highly esteemed as a painter in Cuba besides being a famous actor. I don't know what to say about these paintings except that they look very Cuban. Because Alberto and his family enjoy gazing at themselves, their names are carved in the fieldstone half wall of the front terrace. I picture them grouped inside the largest mirror arrayed in lace mantillas and brocade morning coats from another century or from an episode of Milagros de Amor, figures in a sergeant painting. The deflating evidence of passing time snags my attention when I pass through the rooms. Time is glacially slow in this country, but my face races on across all the mirrors en route to the eternity of nothingness behind the finish line. More or less by chance, I've ascended a few rungs of the local social ladder since my long ago rental on Principe Street, Principe Street, where Ricardo and Barbara Marcet live, which is where I had the long ago affair with Abdul, among others. I've lived in this new place sporadically for two years. Abdul is the only person from that earlier time I've encountered. One day I will visit Ricardo and Barbara. I know I've avoided them because Principe Street will be another mirror reminding me how days become months and months become years. I don't know what to tell Abdul about all the time gone missing, about the money I once had evaporating like steam or the terrifying movements of clocks when you start to be old. Nueve Once had nothing to do with it, really. The American travel ban was ramped up, or so I was told, and the hysteria of those months and years probably deflected me from the effort coming back here would have required, in my suddenly reduced circumstances. A more pedestrian reason was a publishing lunch in 2002, where I was about to hand across the table a proposal for a book about the island, one that my editor had informally commissioned and dangled a half-million-dollar advance for, when said editor announced she was leaving the company. It was a decision obviously reached rather previously. Jumped or was pushed, my agent japed that afternoon. We'll never know which either. It took fantastic effrontery for her to pretend otherwise, but the betrayal itself was nothing unusual in the publishing business. After pulling the plug on my income for what turned out to be a biblical span, she dragged me to Bergdorf Goodman, where she laid out $2,000 for a handbag. This came to mind this afternoon because that luncheon, more than anything else, probably accounts for the great gap in continuity, almost a geological fissure. Seven or eight years of spiritual grisaille commenced between the dessert flan and the custom handbag counter at Bergdorf's. After those flattening years, Havana no longer seemed the place to be, but it is, it always has been. The city is my heart. I will never fully understand why I ever let it go. But I would have been lost trying to squeeze the missing time through the mangle of my own language, much less explain it in defective Spanish. Abdul wasn't really curious about it anyway. I want to skip ahead. This gets a little bit 
<laughs> gets a little bit lugubrious. Um, you know what? Let's just go right to the chapter on Hemingway. Is it at the end of the book? No. You know, you forget really quickly. Let's see. Oh, here we No? Can anybody find that for me? It starts out with Ernest Hemingway in the first line. I shouldn't read the emotional parts of this book because it's not, it's all about me, you know, and like, it's just like, it's sick. It's like the, you really can move yourself to tears, which is disgusting. Um, Chapter 13. Oh, and each chapter, and actually I got this idea from Ernest Hemingway, like <laughs> each chapter there's a little little thing between, like from the collected stories of Ernest Hemingway has that, like little stories between each of the sections or whatever. You know what? One of the few poems that I actually know by heart is by Ernest Hemingway. Um... The age demanded. Do you know it? Do you know it? No? Okay, let me see if I can do it. Um, The age demanded that we sing, and then pulled out our tongues. The age demanded that we flow, then hammered in the bung. The age demanded that we dance, then crammed us into iron pants. And in the end, the age was handed the sort of shit that it demanded. I think that's actually quite a good poem. The ghost of Ernest Hemingway would like to haunt the Isle of Cuba. In Miramar, there is the Hemingway Hemingway Marina. Several bars and hotels in Havana Vieja display portraits of Hemingway in various heroic poses on their walls. A famous Hemingway daiquiri is served in many places. The flea market stalls in the parks of Cespedes have sold disintegrating paperbacks of Adios a las Armas and El Viejo y el Mar and sometimes books by Hemingway in English in all the years I've come here. Most Cubans have never read Hemingway and never will. In fact, most Cubans have no idea who Hemingway was and only recognize the name as that of the marina, or in some cases, the famous daiquiri. The myth of Ernest Hemingway as a Cuban national idol has not enjoyed much traction since the 1960s when Hemingway and Fidel Castro were often photographed together smoking cigars or sharing a comradely embrace. Now that Norman Mailer has joined the shades of ancient evenings, the only American writer who still carries a torch for Ernest Hemingway is Joan Didion, upon whom the influence of Hemingway has not been entirely wonderful. 
The irksome repetitions and overly precious one-line paragraphs in Didion come directly out of Hemingway and the pregnant white space he famously left around his sentences. The tough, laconic, manly men who serve as fantasy heroes in Didion's fiction have the unmistakable Hemingway touch. So do the shrieking pansies and suicidal homos she scatters through her books for spice like pineapple rings on a Christmas ham. If Didion did not have the mind of a steel trap up her sleeve, she would be Ernest Hemingway, much to the detriment of American letters. Hemingway and Marilyn Monroe are often thought of in the same breath, so to speak. They reached their zenith of celebrity and committed suicide around the same time. They embodied certain fantasies and gender stereotypes rampant in the 1950s. Yet we still love Marilyn, whose genius on the screen is there to see. And her sad private story continues to move us, even when recounted by a twaddle factory in Princeton, New Jersey. Hemingway we love considerably less. His genius on the page seems ever more indiscernible as he moves ever closer to the realm of antiquary curiosity where Fanny Hurst and thousands of hula hoops have gathered dust for half a century. How did it happen? Why, why, why did the creator of Lady Brett Ashley and Jake with the missing testicle sink so precipitously in our regard? Hemingway is a lousy writer, a phony writer, a writer whose books are a tissue of falsehoods and moronic cliches of masculinity, a mendacious, ridiculous, deluded buffoon of a writer, intoxicated by fame to the point of writing drivel, a malicious, unscrupulous, pig-headed bully who stole any good ideas he ever had from his betters and turn those ideas into banalities, a harlequin romance novelist masquerading as a pioneer of literary modernism. But none of that has ever tarnished the esteem enjoyed by other male heterosexual American writers of Hemingway's vintage or Hemingway's sensibility in such a dramatic way. F. Scott Fitzgerald may not have been as big a prick as Hemingway, Literally, if Hemingway is himself can be believed, and he can't. But his books are even worse than Hemingway's, including The Great Gatsby, which is often mistaken for a great novel because it can be read in a few hours and its characters are rich people who come to a bad end. Even Charles Bukowski hasn't yet diminished in his influence, and his books are, there is no polite way of saying it, shit. As for today's standard bearers of normal love and the arduous quest involved in becoming a man, they are but pale suburban worms beside the behemoth of snowy Kilimanjaro. Perhaps it's because time has peeled away the testosterone facial mask of this endlessly posturing, preening, pathetic cheerleader of the bullring and killer of elephants and tigers, revealing a callous sissy whom his transgendered son didn't hesitate to address as her. Perhaps it's because white space so readily suggests an absence of mental activity instead of a plenum of imminent meaning. Perhaps it's simply because daiquiris have gone out of fashion. But before we dump his collected writings into the marina with which he is so often confused, bidding good riddance to one's sacred rubbish and forget about Hemingway altogether, let's remember that Hemingway left a sizable chunk of his fortune to his many cats and their successful offspring who still enjoy a life of feline luxury in Florida. So Papa wasn't all bad after all. I think that's it.
I'm sorry, that wasn't really a terribly good reading, but you know, I appreciate you coming anyway. I mean, I can do much better than that. Come to come to Mission Road like next week, and uh, uh, Walter Setting and I are going to perform. I mean, we're, we're going to like we'll yeah, we'll be really good. I mean, I, I wasn't really. I won't say I wasn't myself, but you know, I mean, because <laughs> I, I was, but that can be a drag too. Um, but okay, well, buy it. And what am I expecting? No, I don't think so. What? Yes? You in the front row? <laughs> how, how did you come to be living in Havana? What brought you to Havana first? Oh, it was really wank. I was living out here, and Christopher Williams had just gone to Havana to photograph a palm tree, and he, I was, he invited me over to the studio one day and showed me the palm tree, and I said, gee, maybe I could go to Cuba. And he said, yeah, well, talk to this guy, Al Nadal. And Al Nadal was, you know, working for the city, and he was restoring all the neon on Wilshire Boulevard. And so he said, well, I'm going down to Havana for this conference. You should come down at the same time and hang out and, like, you know, introduce you people. So I did that. I checked into the Hotel Nacional, and somebody that we had been having dinner with was leaving the next day, and I said, well, where is he living anyway? And he said, well, he's living in this apartment, you know, near the Malacan. He's renting. And I said, well, do you think I could get it when he leaves? And he said, sure. So I went down and met the people, and I rented the apartment, and then I ended up renting the same apartment for 10 years and um, going back a lot, you know. Um, the, that's how that happened, just the way anything happens, by pure chance and, you know, caprice, basically. You know, I mean, I really fell in love with Cuba, and I love it there, and I um, fell in love with the people and the place. However, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me see if I can find this right away. But, um, the... <laughs> The food is horrible. It's really horrible. It's like the worst food, even in the Caribbean, which is really, you know, awful food. But, I mean, it's really bad. I mean, there's shortages, but also my theory is that after the revolution, everybody just decided we're not cooking anything anymore. You know, and so everybody forgot how to do it. I mean, the food is just shit. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, we have like a friend of mine, the Sargentine friend, we're sitting watching all these in the Malacan, we're thinking of like a tourist thing. With that, you'll come for the pro- you'll come for the prostitutes, but you'll stay for the food. <laughs> um, what I was had something. Coming. Oh yeah, no, um, yeah. What? Wait, wait, wait. Did you get to know any of the Cuban writers? I don't hang out with writers. I don't hang out with culture people. I, I mean, anywhere. I mean, you know, we'll, yeah, our group or our thing or Nicosa Nostra of like wank, fucked up, crazy people, but not um, the official. I mean, I know the head, the president of the Writers Union. He's a very nice man, but you know, the, like in 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 Havana, if you if you're if you're if you're in that world of the of the official. Um, you know, the, the official Ministry of Culture type of people, it's very stuffy. It, you know, it's very, um, 
how can you say constipated? It's not interesting. Um, some of the individual writer people are interesting, but to me, more interesting are the people I've met that like were really young people, like they wanted to be writers or poets or something like that, and they're like all from Guantanamo places, you know, Santa Clarita, some, you know, that that they don't even have any entree into that world of, you know, the official culture. They just like they're, you know, they're real. I mean. The, um, I, I mean, I know people that are in it. They're fine, you know. I mean, they're nice. It's a, you know, nice is the easiest thing to be. Um, but the gay writers. Well, no. I mean, I don't know who the gay writers are. I mean, the I don't know. The, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are plenty, but I I don't know them. I you know, I hang around with car mechanics and people like that. I mean, just, you know, um, it's, you know, you have a choice there. You're either with the people that have the money that can go wherever they want or the people that just have to live there. And I stay with the people that just have to live there because I like them better. Um, they're more moving to me and interesting. I mean, how they survive because the Cubans are more ingenious than anybody in the world, you know, I and mean, they can fix a car like any car and they can make anything work. They can make it like any piece of electronics work. They can make anything that's broken work because they've had to learn how. You know, I, I mean, and you know, the head of the writers union does not know how to repair a you know, 1952 Oldsmobile, but my friends can do it. Um, all right, so now would you all take your purchased copies of my book up to the test so I can sign and um, thank you for coming. And, um... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.